Hello, hello, hello. Hi, hi. Yada, yada, yada. Things, 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 things and stuff. Stuffing things. Stuffing things into stuff. Things that are stuffed are things. What you're about to hear is a recording of the Poet Salon's first ever live show. Luther and Duji interviewed the amazing poet Natalie Center Zapico in front of a live audience at the Northwest Film Forum as part of Lit Crawl Seattle. I was unable to be there because I was at the Princeton Poetry Festival, but I assure you, Luther and Duji held it down without me just fine. Natalie Center Zapico is a fronteriza from the sister cities of El Paso, Texas and Ciudad Juarez, Chihuahua. She is the author of the poetry collections Lima Limon from Copper Canyon and The Verging Cities from the Center for Literary Publishing. She has won fellowships from the Lannan Foundation, Canto Mundo, and a Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Fellowship. And her poems have appeared in a wide range of anthologies and literary journals, including Best American Poetry 2015, Poetry Magazine, Tin House, and The Kenyon Review. She teaches poetry workshops in English and Spanish at the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington. Prepare to be blessed. Lima Limón, Decrepitud. When the stranger learns I speak Spanish, he makes me stand in my underwear and read from Borges's El Aleph. And because I only want the stranger to love me, I read and wonder if Borges could help me jump through a period on the page to my death. After the stranger whispers, you are Lima, your tongue strips ink from pages. I wonder if the stranger imagines Lima as green or yellow, as sweet or bitter, or as a city where the snow collects on your lover's eyelashes in mid-July. Say limon, clean and ripe and bursting on your tongue. Say lemon, broken and ugly, and not up to par. Say lima, rimac and rima, and spoken from God. God speaks rima rimac. God has spoken rimac, rima, lemon, lima, limon. Thank you. Yeah, you can clap, you can snap. You can really do whatever. You can shout out if you'd like. Um, so this first question is actually from Gabby. The title of your latest book takes its name from Conchita Piquer's song, Lima Limon, mm -hmm. which is a catchy old song from the 40s mm -hmm. that uh, basically describes the danger and shame of being a woman who's still single at 30. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> word. Uh, what was your relationship to that song as you worked on the poems for this book? Um, was it an opponent you were fighting against? Uh, was it providing a sonic landscape, or was it something else entirely? That's interesting. So um, first of all, that, that was a song that was regularly sung in my household while doing um, chores, like household chores. And 
it is about a woman who at the age of 30, the very old age of 30, she has not gotten married. And all of the children like sing in the street outside of her window, like from the lemon to the lime, you will have no one to love you. From the lemon to the lime, you will end up single, right? Like it's very, it's like a lesson, right? Like don't be like her up in the window, not married, right? And um, and then it was always like described to me that it, but it has like, that it has a happy ending. <laughs> because um, she, in the, at the end of the song, gets married to a man who is 20 years her senior, and now she's very happy because she can, she has somebody to like walk the park with. <laughs> um, and it has like, it's a very like kind of happy song. It's a copla. Um, and, you know, so it's very catchy. And I, I'm sure, you know, a lot of you have relationships with songs like this where, you know, you, you sing a song as a child and you're like, I love this song. And then you listen to it later and you're like, oh, this song is really messed up. <laughs> like, not a good song. Um, and so I started to think a little bit about um, that song, kind of the role that it played in my childhood. And also the ways in which um, in Latin America, we can never really agree on what to call a lemon or a lime. Like it depends on what country you're in, right? What you'll get if you ask for a limon, right? Whether you even use the word lima at all, right? Things like that. Um, and, and then of course, from there, I just sort of fell into the metaphorical world of you know, the, the lime in particular. Um, and I was really interested in, you know, for that, for that first section, I was interested in what it would be like to write a whole series um, of poems kind of spinning off of relationships to that particular song. So, yeah, I think that it, there's a lot of answers. I'm interested in asking whether it was my opponent. Um, I don't know that I really see it as a, my opponent necessarily. Um, I think it's 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 too complicated a relationship for that, right? Uh, I wish in some ways I could say, you know, yeah, it's you know like down, right? Um, but on the other hand, I think that that's what's really complicated with a lot of our relationships to to art, especially that we encounter as children, right? Um, that we like and enjoy as children. Um, and then trying to like decipher your relationship with it as an adult or, or rearrange your relationship with it as an adult. I don't know. Did, did you find yourself more, I, I guess, more teasing out the complexity or like rearranging it to sort of add nuance? I think I'm always rearranging to add nuance. I, I, I think because I come from a border space, I'm from the sister cities of El Paso, Texas, and Ciudad Juarez, Chihuahua, Mexico, originally. Um, and so for me, I'm always very like hesitant about anything that is really binary, <laughs> right? Uh, I think because I come from such a binary space um, that anything, even like very radical, you know, like opinions that are not, um, thoughtful, I think, to, to the complexities that people can have, right, about certain topics uh, are, are always a little dangerous to me and, and can be, you know, difficult, right? Um, so the book treads on this line between desire and obsession, or like more so 
natural desire of the body and the actions caused by desire. So I'm curious to talk about or expand on what desire means to you and how you approach its effects in your poetry. I think for me, desire is so tied to to longing um, that it's really hard for me to like separate the two in many, many ways. Um, in in both of my books, in Lima Limona and in The Virgin Cities, I'm, bo- I'm really interested in uh, kind of what does it mean to really desire and long for uh, a place, which oftentimes for me, um, because I'm from El Paso Juarez, when I was in college as an undergraduate at the University of Texas at El Paso, it was the the height of the, the drug war, right? Um, and so there, this is when, you know, there's the huge drug war that erupted in Juarez between the two cartels, and then there's also all of the federales that come in um, when Mexico decides to declare its war on drugs, right? And it's like a literal war, and it's just like a collision of horrible events in Juarez. And so, you know, for me, it was really hard because I grew up going to, you know, both cities really easily and kind of viewing Juarez as almost like another part of my city. And so all of a sudden, not being able to go um, as frequently or as easily, does that make sense? Like everything felt so much more loaded than it used to. Um, that for I, it left me with an extreme desire, right? It left me with a lot of these feelings of longing. And I also, you know, because I grew up in this space, um, you know, I, it's very common in these spaces to have loved ones or people that you know that are very close to you um, who are undocumented. And I'm a little bit older, <laughs> believe it or not, than the generation um, where we ha- really had language for a lot of this, right? So I'm a little bit older than the dreamer generation. Um, and so when we think about like trying to navigate all of that when there's not even really a language for why, for example, um, you know, a lot of people that I loved like couldn't even leave the city right, El Paso, into the United States and to other areas because of the border checkpoints outside, right, of El Paso going into Texas or going into New Mexico, not just on the literal border. Um, you know, it's, it's all about what, what is on this other side, this desire, this longing. It, it's all sort of completely interconnected. Um, and so I think growing up in that kind of space very much affected the way that I um, think about, you know, longing, desire, lust, um, all of it. Like I, I'm really, it's, it's always going to be inherently uh, politicized, right? And so for you, lust is less than longing and desires kind of tied to this idea of home and the idea of the family and of um, kind of boots on the ground um, versus like the idea of intimacy uh, with another body or another person. And that's very, very curious to me. Um, do you see the two being uh, intermingled in any way? Do you see at one point in your life you're like, well, desire for me means a body desire versus quote-unquote home desire or is it always going to be for you kind of muddied in this way well I think it's muddied when um you know the inherently 
for me, you know, the, well, you know, and this isn't a, I mean, my whole first book is about this, The Virging Cities. Um, my husband came undocumented to the United States when he was 10 years old um, and did not, he's from northern Mexico and did not get, uh, a, you know, any kind of visa until we got married. And so it was always for me, like inherently the, the, the politics of, of just, loving him in many ways it was it was always seen as almost like a treasonous act I mean also in the years that I first moved in with him um now they're like switching back to this they kind of had lessened it a little bit for a while um and really going after people and like upholding these laws but uh you know like it also you can also be charged with like giving refuge to someone right if they're undocumented just for living with them, things like that, right? Um, and so, you know, immediately for me, love, lust, all of those things, it's immediately being governed by politics all the time, right? Um, from the time I was very young, um, and still, and still is. I, I, it's, the two are not separate. I'm really curious about, um, you know, I think desire and longing is uh, at least like historically sort of associated with distance. Um, and I'm curious, you know, especially with like that idea of virgin cities and, you know, the border town, like it's less a physical distance. And I'm curious like then sort of what the liminal space is that you're interested in exploring if it's not physical distance. Yeah, I mean, I love that you asked that and that you phrase it in that way because, um, you know, it's, I always have to explain a lot of the times to people that, um, El Paso and Juarez, you know, they used to be one city. It used to all be El Paso del Norte. And then when it was decided that the river would mark the border in Texas, this was one of the cities that was literally split. And so it is always like, for me, um, it's not that I'm longing for a place that is necessarily far away, but it is probably farther away than if it existed, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles away mm -hmm. for the lack of ability to go there or because of the dangers of going there or for not, you know, in this case, many times, you know, my husband not being able to go there, whatever, right? And so um, that that's always sort of an interesting line to me to be able to, like, see something, right? Even with all of its barriers, because, you know, in El Paso Juarez, they have you know, we've had our, with the, the wall sort of went up when I was in college. It was one of the first places where they put a wall. So like Trump always likes to go to El Paso. So you can be like, we're going to put this wall everywhere, right? Um, and, and, and so even though it's completely sort of obscured and whatever, and you kind of have to like see through the graded fence, the graded metal, that it's just right there, right? That it's not far away at all. Um, yeah. Um, another poem time? Sure. Yeah? Um, could you read um, Neo Machismo on page six for us? Of course. Neo Machismo. To see if you're still alive, Heat caramel in a pan until it spits asteroids on your arms. Take good care of your burns. Your scars should never last longer than two years. Pain needs a clean slate to play on. Wear a red dress 
and let men pull at it all night. Your desire to have your hair pulled, to bleed, to lick your wounds like a dog in heat. Say you're sorry for getting angry. Say you're sorry for being angry. Say you're sorry that you're angry. Anger is the emotion of men. By adding sugar, lime, and salt, you can turn anger into sadness as a good woman should. Stop sobbing, it's ugly. Instead, emulate the glass tears on virgins who look up to the men who bruised their bodies. Tell your man, you're machista. Have him repeat this statement back to you in HTML. Like in the movies, let the pot boil over until he screams he'll send you back home to your mother. When he can't stop laughing, laugh too. Become the foreigner who doesn't understand. Hay pena, penita pena. Listen to Lola Flores and search for the pain between your eyes on WebMD. Don't feel bad if you sob in one room while he reads about aporia in the next. Like La Lola Flores, you have beautiful hair. Unlike La Lola, sell it to make rent. Laugh when he says, mija, cabrona, ingrata, and eres mía. Assure him he's not turning into his father. When he says you are letting this happen, don't reply. Put his fingers in your mouth and hold your breath when he asks, who taught you to hate yourself? Um, Natalie, Natalie, Natalie. Um, so I always feel like you have the the best endings in your poems. Um, the best. Like the best. And I'm always asking myself, like I read a poem of yours and I go, how in the hell did I get here in this poem? And so I'm just curious about your process when it comes to poems, like poetry endings. And like, yeah, how do you end a poem? That's a great question. Um, I wish I had like a magical, um, you know, formula or something, uh, how to do it. I will say one of the things that I've, I find really difficult, sometimes people talk about like starting with an ending and then like writing towards that ending. Um, and I've always been like very intrigued by that because I, I, I just doesn't do work. Do that? People do that. Yeah. They like, I know they start with an end and then they write towards that end. Um, and I, I, yeah, I'm fascinated as well. Yeah. That seems like eliminate some of the mystery, right? Like so many poets talk about writing into mystery and it seems like if you know where you're going, that it's the opposite. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> or you like have to invent it as you go. I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah, that's a good critique of that strategy. Um, for me, I think I, I'm, my endings take a long time. They're not things that come quickly at all for me. Um, and oftentimes I'll play with, you know, sometimes an ending will, it'll, a poem will end really, the end line is something that happens earlier in the poem and needs to be moved, right, towards that space. Or as I'm revising, there's something about, um, the way in which, like, you know, the, the poem is good, but the end is just not punchy enough, mm. right? And so that is something that I'm always sort of looking for. I will say that um, 
it's not like a hard and fast rule. I mean, I didn't do it in this poem, interestingly, but I, I do like a lot to end on an image. Like I usually am really big on that, um, on just ending with an image, with a strong image um, to leave the reader with. What made you not end on an image for this poem you just read? I think because the poem itself is so much about like um, rules and advice that it felt like it needed to end with a with a question or a rule or advice. Does that make sense? And yeah. so, um, like to end on an image, actually now that I'm thinking about it, I think in that poem originally it did end with an image and then I had to revise it out of that um, because it didn't it didn't match, you know, what was happening in the, the structure. So um, I'm sort of obsessed with repetition just generally as a craft element. Um, and I'm in love with your use of repetition, particularly throughout the book, um, especially for us, both its aesthetic and ethical implications. Mm -hmm. um, I think typically of repetition, um, like conventional wisdom would say, like every time you repeat a word or phrase, it should sort of be recast in a different way. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think a lot of times in your book, the repetition is actually sort of an insistence on the same thing or like a refusal to look away from that initial thing um, that was pointed out. And in various, uh, and you're sort of explicitly dealing with aesthetics throughout the book. Um, and there's a poem with aesthetic called Aesthetic Translation. You seem to use repetition to aesthetize like statistics from New York Times articles. Uh, and then in, in the poem, The Women Wear Surgical Masks, you're explicitly working against aestheticizing mm -hmm. the women in the poem. Acknowledging even that the poem uh, is a failed recreation, mm -hmm. quote. So I'm curious what an aesthetic of repetition might mean to you, um, and at what point does the aesthetic consideration become an ethical one? Yeah, that, those are great questions. Um, I think for me, there's a few things happening with regards to this book. One of the things that I'm always very fascinated with because I write about the border um, is not just writing about like the, the drug war, but also about femicide, um, which, you know, there's been strains of femicide um, in Ciudad Juarez since the 1990s. And so it's something that I you know, it's like been my entire childhood, young adolescence um, is growing up with, with femicide and sort of in the shadow of that. And um, one of the things that I always have had a really hard time with is like I grew up in a space where um, I was always surrounded by missing flyers, right? Um, and that there's always sort of a repetition of seeing the missing flyers, of having huge obituary sections, right? And just like constantly, does that make sense, having to, to be surrounded by death in these ways? Um, and the documents of death. Right? The documentation, the constant documentation of, of death, of brutality, um, of, uh, of violence to the point where you, you sometimes can become, uh, you, you really want to look away from all of it, right? Like it can become too much, especially when it's in your community and it's so close to you. Um, and so one of the things that I've always really questioned, and I don't know that I have the like an answer for it, to be perfectly honest, but I think it's important to like pose the question is, you know, what are the ethics with regards to how we aestheticize writing about this kind of violence? Mm. And how do we think about these things? Is it something that you're considering over the project of, 
you know, whatever it is that you're working on. There are a lot of books about Ciudad Juarez, um, you know, that I'll be honest, are very difficult for me to look through or go through or read because even though it's my area, because it's so personal, right? It's so close to home um, that for me, it's not something where it's like, well, I decided to visit the border for a year or something and I did this in-depth reporting and then left. Like for me, it's it's my family, it's my home, it's where I'm from and so it's, it's a very different feeling. So when I'm looking at repetition with regards to this book, I think that there is something, um, there is an obsessiveness that I have with regards to really um, thinking about the emotional landscape of where it is that I grew up, of the kind of violence that I grew up around, of not just talking about it in, a, in an abstract way, but really telling the narratives, especially of a lot of these women with regards to Lima Limon. But also throughout the collection, while I do that, I also question how I'm doing that. Right. Um, because there's I don't know that there's always um, a correct way. Does that make sense to address it? I, I don't know that there is. Um, but I think that like engaging in the process of also self-reflecting and bearing that for the reader is important for them, too. Mm -hmm. Right. And is important, I think, for your own aesthetic practice. It's it's really interesting to hear you talk about um, the experience of like using repetition as a kind of way to respond to a kind of repetition. Mm -hmm. um, because uh, to me, I, I have an erasure practice and mm -hmm. um, like years going now. And so one of my questions is often like, how do I fight against erasure? Like mm -hmm. in the sort of abstract, not just in the craft way too. And then it ends up being in the craft way. <laughs> how do you sort of reverse erasure stuff? Um, and so I guess I'm wondering like, in light of living in a kind of repetition that is a history of femicide that is erased in our sort of national consciousness, because obviously we don't talk about it nearly enough, mm -hmm. like do you find that your use of repetition is a kind of way to combat that erasure, like to fill it in? Um, and like, I guess like what does it mean then to like sort of take control of that kind of repetition? I mean, I, I hope so in some ways. I think that one of the, the reasons that I also really focus on El Paso Juarez and continuing to talk about this particular era is because, you know, at the time when femicide was at its height in um, El Paso Juarez and Juarez in particular, the we have to also understand like the border, especially at that time in the early thousands and then in the late 90s, was completely like a, a, a test tube for modernization and fast-paced globalization. Um, this is the height of NAFTA. This is uh, that you know, there's maquilas, there's huge maquilas all over the place, right? Um, these are mainly maquila workers who are being, you know, killed, right? These women that work in maquilas. Um, and so when we think about what's happening in that space, everyone was like, what is going on, right? Like why all of a sudden is there all, all these women going missing and being found brutally murdered in the desert? And one of the things that's fascinating to me is that we said this like over and over in the 2000s, like what happens in this space 
because it's sort of this like condensed space where all of these things are coming together, it will spread to the larger to the larger nation state. This isn't something that is completely contained within this space and we won't ever see it move. And in fact, we have seen it spread, right? So femicide in Ciudad Juarez has gone down tremendously after the drug wars. But now we look at Mexico, for example, and in central Mexico and southern Mexico, they have some of the highest rates of femicide in the world. And we look in the United States and we have huge rates of murdered and missing indigenous women that no one wants to talk about, right? And so when we think about why, let's take the US context, right? Because we're in the United States. Why are there so many missing and murdered indigenous women? Well, very similarly to El Paso Juarez, what is going on on a lot of the places where there are reservations or around reservations? You have the oil industry, you have fracking, so you have these camps basically, right, where you have men, lots of money, does that make sense, coming in and out, very, all of, you know, they're very deserted areas. All of these things completely imitate the kind of environment that we saw in the late 90s, early thousands in El Paso Juarez. And so we have to really like be critical of the ways in which we um, kind of conceive, right, of, of, uh, of border spaces, um, of, of not just sort of brushing them off, right? There's a reason why there's an obsession with them, right? Because what's happening on them is, it's to be paid attention to. I don't know if that completely answered your question. <laughs> it was lovely. <laughs> I appreciate that thought either way. Um, before we start to wrap it up, um, I'm just really curious um, because you're talking about and discussing and all these things about erasure and violence against women and, you know, this kind of, yeah, all the, that, those violences against the home and all these things. I'm just curious about where do you find the joy in your life writing these things down um, or is the joy in documenting what has been erased? I, I'm going to give you a very unsatisfactory answer. Um, Please. We, uh, love, we love that. <laughs> yeah. I, so I know that this is not trendy. I realize that. Um, but I, I don't know that there is necessarily a joy, <laughs> right? I don't think I would be doing my job uh, appropriately or well if I found joy in my writing life. I think that I uh, do it for other reasons than joy, right? Um, I will say that, you know, one of the things that I talk about a lot with my students is like, you can have a really great writing day um, and feel awful afterwards, right? That's at least very common for me um, because the things that I write about are not things that afterwards I feel joy in, right? Um, I, I sort of am looking at it from a, a different lens and, and doing it for different reasons. And I think with regards to um, maybe finding joy in other ways, I think for me, uh, I have to take breaks in between projects. Mm -hmm. That's really the, the way that I have to recharge. So instead of it happening kind of, you know, on a more daily basis in between. I have to take time off in between projects to recalibrate and, and rest, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Thank you. 
um, one final poem. Um, I am with child on page 63, please. Sure. I am with child who eats thin steak still bleeding. Child sits on my chest, says, cut off my head, please. I look for a plastic knife and saw at child's cheeks. Child screams, saw, saw, saw. I saw until child says, I want to burst into a thousand video game pixels. I saw until child's blood falls on my shirt. I carry child in my rotating arms and call thief to take child away. Thief comes and fills child's cuts with gold leaf he stole from the Catedral Metropolitana. Thief says child is holy and child can give forgiveness. Child looks deep into the stripes of my pupils and says, I do not forgive the bug on your immigrant tongue. I open my mouth, find my immigrant bug, a black sore. I clean the knife of child's blood on my sleeve, cut the sore free and ask child what I must do. Child says, that sore was a gift from your immigrant mother, welcome. You are immigrant no more. Thank you so much. That's uh, the end of our show. Yeah, that's the end of our show. Thank you all for being here and, you know, letting us poet salon for you. Um, Thank you to Natalie for being wonderful and intellectual and being just a great person. Um, thank you to Lit Cross Seattle uh, for allowing us to do this Northwest Film Forum. Thank you to Gabby, who is not here, um, but helped us, you know, helps us put together every episode. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, you can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts at the Poet Salon Pod. <laughs> um, Ron, that's everything. Twitter that's Twitter handle, yeah. Post on pause the Twitter handle, but anywhere else, Spotify, Apple, all the good stuff. Find us on there. Rate us five wonderful stars. Subscribe. Subscribe. You pull out your phones like right now. Um, um, season two will be dropping in January, so stay tuned. Wonderful guests will be in season two. Um, and that is all. You guys have a wonderful night. Enjoy Lit Crawl. Yeah. Vedi and spaghetti, vedi in the...